Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know those words? That was the very first command ever given by God to any of His creatures that we know of, given in the garden a long, long time ago. And those words, don't eat that, if you do, you die, those words were still echoing in Eve's ears when she violated them. And she chose to believe instead the hissing promise of a serpent in the garden who told her that if she ate that fruit, that if she disobeyed God's one command, she could become like God. And when her own flesh confirmed that desire in her that the tree was good to eat and looked nice too, she took, she ate. Those words, that one Literally, one command were still there in Adam's mind when he received the fruit from Eve's hand and with her ate and cast the world into death. God proved good to his word. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. From the moment their teeth closed around the pulp, death entered into the world. And we read this from Paul in Romans. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So really what you find when you start your every January new Bible reading plan in Genesis 1 and 2, you find a world of life and light. If you read the first two chapters of Genesis, it's a beautiful world. It's teeming or swarming with living creatures that God has made. They live and no one dies. There's no predator closing its jaw around prey. There's no death happening like that in Genesis 1 and 2. And then you get to Genesis 3 like a cruel doorway. Mankind enters with Adam and Eve through Genesis 3. And where do you end up? In Genesis 4. And in Genesis 4, what do we find? death. In Genesis 4, Adam and Eve's children, one kills the other. In 1 and 2, there was no death, but through the sin and rebellion of 3, you get to death. There in chapter 4, only eight verses into the fallen world, you read, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It could have been a different sin. It could have been adultery. It could have been anything else, and yet the first major sin we read of after the fall is murder. And it is a fitting sin to find in chapter 4 because that is what God said would enter into the world, death. And here is now Cain spiritually dead and he proves it by producing physical death in his own brother, a fratricide. That's at the beginning of the Bible. That's what the fall brought into this world. And I don't have to convince you of that using the Bible. If you happen to be here and not even believe the Bible, you can just look at the world. You can just read a newspaper and you know that we live in a world of death. It's everywhere. You see it in the diagnosis. You see it in the funerals that you attend. There is death 
in this world. It's like in the Old Testament, there is one story where the sons of the prophets are gathering up gourds and making a stew for themselves, and one of the gourds is poisonous, and so they try it and say, there's death in the pot. We sadly can say that about this world. There's death in this world. It's not safe. It's not healthy anymore. It was in Genesis 1 and 2, but we went through the doorway of chapter 3, right into chapter 4, into all of this death. What John wants you to see in our text today is that the physical death in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain killing Abel, was merely a reflection of a deeper sort of death that we have all experienced ever since the time of the garden. It is a spiritual death. It matters more than your physical death, believe it or not, and it afflicts all mankind. And you're going to see John now referring to the story of Cain in Genesis 4 to show us not only the physical death in the world, but the spiritual. So let's read this. We're in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. A lot of life and a lot of death here in this reference to Cain. You might remember that last week, just in verse 10, we saw that John was concluding his discussion of how we can identify the children of the devil and know if we are children of the devil or of God by these markers, two of them. One, children of the devil don't practice righteousness. That's in verse 10. Number two, Children of the devil do not love their brother or sister. And that last comment, which is often the case in this letter, the last comment of the previous section sends John into a new direction, a new discussion. He is now talking about love for believers, love of brothers, because that's how he ended the last section. You might be aware that every chapter of 1 John, except chapter 1, includes uh, just one extended discussion of this command from Jesus that we believers should love each other. So we saw in chapter 2, he had one discussion of love. He said it's an old commandment. It's not brand new. It's an old commandment. You know it. Love each other. It's also a new commandment in Jesus because he's bringing it to fruition. And if you love, you're in the light and not in darkness. That was chapter 2. Now in chapter 3, we are entering into the one long discussion in this chapter about the command to love. And it's going to take us all the way through chapter 3. And then we'll find another discussion in chapter 4 and another in chapter 5. So obviously important that we love one another. 
But he's going to start today by urging you to love each other in a negative way. <laughs> Do you see that in the text? He says we should love each other. That's the message. We know that. But he wants to start in a negative way by showing you this is how not to love each other. Don't be like Cain. So John is drawing on the story of Cain. This is the only place in 1 John that he clearly refers to the Old Testament, interestingly enough, and it's to this story in Genesis 4 of Cain. And what he does is first pulls from the story of Cain a warning for you. Don't be like Cain. Don't hate believers. But then partway through this passage, he changes his purpose and he goes from warning you based on the story of Cain to then offering you an explanation of why you yourself as a Christian are hated by the world and persecuted. <laughs> so really what the reason for the title change, what ties this whole section together is the story of Cain. And he gives us a warning from the story of Cain about our love for each other, and he gives us an explanation of why we're persecuted. So that's how we'll consider this passage today, those two things. So let's begin with the warning that he gives. The warning is for you, do not, do not hate believers. Look at this in verse 12. After telling us we need to love each other, verse 12 says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one, we saw that previously, what that means. He was of the evil one and he murdered his brother. Now, I would venture to guess that you are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. It's found in Genesis 4 in the Old Testament. In fact, that's the only place in the entire Old Testament Cain is ever mentioned. And there's just a spattering of references to him in the New Testament by way of illustration and yet, this very brief story in Genesis chapter 4 is ingrained into our very culture. You might remember if you were in high school, were you ever forced to read the book Beowulf? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say forced. Maybe you enjoyed it. You should. But that is one of our greatest Old English epic poems that we have culturally. It's Beowulf. And you might remember that the monster in Beowulf, Grendel, he is said to be a descendant of Cain. And so that story was composed some thousand years ago. And even then, in our very culture, in the air we breathe, there's this understanding that Cain is a murderer. So you are probably already aware of the story of Cain and Abel. But what I want to do really briefly right now is since it's only found in 16 verses in Genesis 4, and that's it, I want to read those verses for you. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to flip to the very beginning of it, just to the fourth chapter, and I want to read the first 16 verses. Besides what we find here in 1 John, this is everything we know about Cain. So once you know these verses, you know Cain. So let me read here Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten, that's a Hebrew word that sounds like Cain, I have gotten Cain, a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel, a word that means breath, because he's only going to live for a breath's amount of time. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to or maybe for you, but you must rule over it. And he didn't because Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, notice no remorse, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord in more ways than one. And settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Like I said, Cain never reappears in the Old Testament. So if you know this about Cain, you know everything there is to know about Cain, except maybe some of what we find in 1 John. So return now to 1 John with this passage in your mind. John is drawing on those verses you just now heard and saw to make these points first to warn you. Maybe you didn't know when you were reading Genesis chapter 4 that part of God's intention when you read that is to warn you not to be like Cain. Now when you first hear the warning, it's easy for any of us to kind of slip out from under it because the warning is don't be like Cain and what did Cain do? He murdered someone. So you might think, as long as I don't murder someone, then this passage has no relevance for me. Of course I'm not like Cain. I'm not killing anyone. That's an easy way to evade what John is saying, but that's not what John is saying. Sorry, it's not what John is saying. Certainly it does apply to actual murder, but it applies as a warning to you who will never murder anyone. We should not be like Cain, but look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is like Cain. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
When we're challenged about our sin, our hatred for Christians, it happens, you know it happens. When you're challenged about the bitterness you feel toward believers or your hatred toward believers, oftentimes we'll fall back, and unbelievers do this with any sin they struggle with, we'll fall back and say, well, I'm not Hitler. And what do we mean by that? At least I'm not murdering people. And John says, I will have none of that. He says, you're not allowed to use that as an excuse. You're not allowed to pick someone who's a murderer out there in the world, a serial killer or a Hitler, and you can't say, well, at least I'm not like Hitler. John is saying, if you hate believers, you are like Hitler. In other words, you are like Cain. He's not just talking of physical murder. He makes clear even hatred toward your brother, that's a believer, even hatred toward a believer is murder. That's how he says it. You're a murderer. Certainly there is a difference in degree and consequence. We're not saying if you just think hateful thoughts and if you actually kill someone, exactly the same. No, but they're both heinous sins. And what God is not allowing you to do this morning is to minimize the bitterness you feel toward believers or the hatred you may feel toward believers. You are, probably can hear the echo of Jesus' own words in this passage. You remember them from the Sermon on the Mount, meant to be shocking and challenging, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of old, and he pulls one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he say, phew, haven't murdered. Not liable to judgment. I'm good. I'm clear. And then Jesus went on to say, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, sinful anger, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, one of their courts. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell or Gehenna of fire. The point Jesus made on the Sermon on the Mount about murder of the heart is the same point that John is making in this passage. And it is that you don't have to actually kill someone to be a killer. That there is a guilt, a wrongness, and it begins in the heart. Every murder that ever happened, except for accidental ones, I suppose, but every murder that ever happened begins right here, usually long before it gets to the hand. It's a long journey from here to the hand, but it starts right here. That's John's point. Hatred here is murder, and therefore you can see how this passage relates to you as a warning. Don't hate believers. An illustration of this is given in 1994. I was two years old at the time. You remember that, I know, I know, I was born yesterday, but you may remember that in 1994, a genocide took place in Rwanda. Uh, one of the worst genocides that's ever happened, if you consider how quickly it took place. It was just a three-month event, actually. What happened at that time is that there were two tribes, the Hutus. They were larger, the Tutsis, smaller, tribal ethnic identity, Hutus and the Tutsis. And... In 1994, in just the course of about three months, six to 800,000 Tutsis were murdered by their Hutu neighbors. Hutu farmers, Hutu businessmen, Hutu priests were all involved in taking up machetes 
and putting to death their co-workers, spouses, friends, neighbors, people they'd grown up with, put them to death. They murdered them. That's what a genocide is. How is it possible, and this is what the world always asks, how is it possible that a whole nation of people can rise up so quickly and in the space of about a hundred days put to death half a million of their fellow compatriots there in Rwanda? How's that even possible? They're living together. How can that even happen? The answer is right here in our text. It is because the Hutus had already murdered the Tutsis many times over in their hearts before 1994. In April of 1994, a Hutu, a president who happened to be Hutu, his plane crashed or was blown up, and that was the spark that led to the physical murders. But it's not like everyone got along perfectly and that spark happened and mass murder. It's that Long before that, the Hutus regarded the Tutsis as cockroaches. It was long before that that they hated them, that they despised them for many historical reasons you can read about. They did not like them. The murder of the heart was already happening day after day after day. And when the spark of 1994 happened, it merely brought that murder of the heart into physical action. Really, all that happened was that the consequences or the restraint of government or law that Romans 13 talks about had been removed. And therefore, what was in the heart and wanted to express itself was, with nothing hindering it, able to express itself in genocide. And you'll see later in this passage where John talks about we, we who believe have been transferred from death to life. That means, like we've talked about, that all of us, like the Hutus, begin abiding in death. And in this world of death, in this murder of the heart, once the restraint was removed, that expressed itself. That's all that happened. There wasn't some massive disconnection between hating and murder. They were clearly connected and the hindrance was removed. One of the Hutus who participated in the murders later was interviewed and this is how he explained his motivation. He said, killing is very discouraging if you, you yourself must decide to do it even to an animal, but if you must obey the orders of the authorities, as children of the devil, that's what we do, if you have been properly prepared, if you feel yourself pushed and pulled, and then he said this, if you see that the killing will be total and without disastrous consequences for yourself, you feel soothed and reassured, you go off to it with no more worry. No consequences? then the heart expresses itself. And what is in the heart? Naturally, Cain. In other words, before 1994, the Hutus were simply non-murderers by accident. Just an accident of being restrained. It happened to be the circumstances that were preventing them. But if those were removed, everything within them wanted to be murder. And that's what it came out as. That's what John is saying here. Everyone who hates his brother, he's referring to among Christians, but it applies outside of that as well. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer because there is not much of a disconnect between the hatred and the murder itself. Just consequences, government, restraint, things like that. Look even at the end of verse 14. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. If you don't 
love as a characteristic of your life. You live in a world of death. You're producing it. It's in you, it's around you, and it's not just physical. It wants to be that. It's a spiritual death. You're dead. You're not sensitive to the life of God, and you want to produce harm or ultimately death in others. That's what it means to abide in death here. And if you don't love, if there's not love flowing out of you, there can only be death flowing out of you. Brothers and sisters, please don't be like this. Of course, John is talking about someone who characteristically hates believers and therefore is spiritually dead. And yet the warning is written to believers as well as a warning to us. Don't look like them even. Don't have even a hint of Cain about you. Don't be a murderer in your heart by the bitterness that you allow to fester toward the people who are sitting in this room. Hatred, bitterness, let's not fool ourselves and say, well, I, I don't even talk to that person, don't like them. I just don't talk to them, so I haven't done anything bad to them. Not enough. That is not enough. You've got to deal with the bitterness festering in your own heart. You can't even allow hatred to be here because hate, those who hate are murderers. Those who don't love abide in death. You deal with it right here. If you feel a hatred toward a believer sitting in this room, maybe they've really wronged you. Maybe they really have. I'm not denying that distinct possibility. But regardless what they've done, you are not allowed to allow hatred to enter into your heart and remain there. And you say, well, what about the righteous anger? But do you remember righteous anger in James is characterized by the sun never going down on it, <laughs> meaning it's short-lived. I'm talking about the bitterness that festers into hatred that lasts long-term to where you can hardly stand a person. And John is saying, if you're a believer, that's not allowed. Maybe you thought that was allowed. That's not allowed. That's off limits. You can't have that toward anyone. Even if they've done you a great wrong, that is not permitted. That is not Christian. That is Cain, not Christian. Here's Christ. Here's Cain. You take your pick. Cain hated his brother and murdered him, and you cannot do that. It was John Owen, another John, a Puritan, who helped us to understand the connection between this hatred in the heart and murder itself, because you still might say, those are so different. This little bitterness I have, it's not a big deal. Here's John Owen. He says, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. And herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin by which it prevails to the hardening of men, and so to their ruin. It is modest, as it were, in its first motions and proposals. You start to get bitter towards someone because of something they've done, some habit, some way they've let you down, and at first that sin of bitterness is so modest. Of course you'd be upset. They let you down. It's not a big deal. You're not doing anything to them. So it's modest in its first proposals. Everyone can see they've got that problem. That's on them. That's not you. And you're letting that grow. But having once got footing in the heart by them, it constantly makes good its ground and presses on to some farther degrees in the same kind. You start with just the little 
tinge of bitterness or disappointment and then you don't stop it there and what will happen? You say, I can just keep it there and no, you can't. It starts right there and then it begins to move. It began just a mere annoyance, but you allowed the annoyance to fester toward another believer. It could be your spouse. It could be someone in this room, someone you interact with, someone outside this room. They're a Christian and you let it start as annoyance, maybe a justified annoyance. And if you stopped it there, that could be a righteous anger. But sometimes you don't. And that mere annoyance in your heart, you don't deal with it. You say, you can, you can live here. You can live here. You're not... You're not bothering anyone. You stay right there. And that develops a little bit until now it's hard for you to talk to that person. You don't make eye contact with them. You're dodgy. You know what I'm talking about. Because you've been thinking negatively about them. So now your communication is broken with them. Say, so still not a big deal. They don't even know. They probably didn't even notice. And now you let it develop further. You don't deal with it. And now not only can you not talk to them, but you begin to talk to others about them and trying to get people on your team because you see the same thing, right? That I see in them, that's bad. And now as you talk with them, it's stirring it up because that sin wants to grow and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And where does it stop? By God's grace, it often stops short of what it could be. But what John is saying here is that if that sin was not restrained at all, you would be lifting your hand in the field to kill that person. This is the warning we have. Brothers and sisters, don't be like Cain. You may never get to the last step, but kill your sin at the first step. Let us love one another. And that requires a constant vigilance over your own heart. If you've got a major offense someone has done to you who's a believer, go to them. Just, I know it's awkward. I know it's awkward. You know it's awkward. What if it makes things more awkward? But if you can't deal with that here, you need to go to that person and make that right right now. Or you will become a murderer in your heart. Don't do that. And if it's something that you can deal with on this level without addressing something smaller, a personal preference issue, whatever, their breath smells bad, I don't care, whatever that is, then you deal with that right here and you crush that. We don't allow that among us. We are not to be like Cain. So there is the warning. So I'll take heed of that. But what's interesting, like I said, is that John, he starts by using Cain as a warning, a negative example of how not to hate each other. But then as he brings Cain into the conversation, he decides he wants to make another application of that story for you. And this is now an explanation of why persecution happens. Why does the world hate you? You can see this here. He asks this question in verse 12. And why did Cain... Murder Abel. And if you've read Genesis 4, you realize it doesn't actually give you an answer there. But thankfully, John has told us, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. And he follows this with, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. One of the few places that Cain is mentioned in the New Testament is in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. He's mentioned in passing because we're told that Abel, who brought his offering before the Lord of his first fruits and their fat portions, did so by faith and therefore pleased God. So it's clear that Cain, even though he brought an animal as an offering, did not do so by faith. He did not do well. That's what God told him. You didn't do well. And that's what made him angry. 
He, therefore, Cain, becomes angry at Abel. And if you just think of the anger that Cain felt toward Abel, we call this envy. You're aware of this. It's not logical. That's one thing John wants you to know when you think of the way the world views you, believer. Sometimes we think that when the world becomes hostile toward us, we can just reason our way back into the favor of the world. Unfortunately, it just does not work that way. We should be winsome. We should be gracious. Don't be unnecessarily offensive to unbelievers. But think about the archetype of the world's hatred toward Christians found in Cain and Abel. Why did Cain hate Abel? Was it because Abel wronged Cain? No. Was it because Abel threatened Cain? No. Was it because Abel had been unjust or cruel to Cain? No. So Cain, why are you so hateful toward Abel that you're willing to kill your own brother? And Cain wouldn't say this because none of us do, but the answer is because Abel is good. Because, John says, Cain was bad, his deeds were evil, and Abel, his deeds were good. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense because if Abel's righteous, that means his dealings with Cain, he's going to be even more gracious, even more just, even more fair in his dealings than someone unrighteous. But it doesn't matter. It's not reasonable. It's not logical. Cain's hatred is deriving out of probably a sense of his own guilt, maybe. That happens. You feel guilty because they're doing the right thing, so you come up with reasons to be upset with them. And John is saying that's the way the world views you. The reason the world calls you a goody two-shoes or puritanical or holier than thou, assuming you're not just being offensive for no reason, the reason the world views you that way is because the world is in darkness and here you are living in light and that's convicting. It reminds them that they're doing wrong. No one comes out and just says, you know what, I really don't like you because you're so good. <laughs> so what happens instead is that he says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. The way the world comes to hating you, the way Cain hated Abel, is by coming up with reasons. Usually they have to invent these reasons. Think about, for example, the early church, those first Christians who were thrown to Roman lions. What did they ever do wrong? They were righteous. They loved their neighbors. When babies were abandoned, a sort of early form of abortion, this exposing, they would take those babies in and care for them. When there were widows, not only Christian widows, even unbelieving widows who needed help, Christians would go and help them. Christians were good citizens. They were faithful. They were upright. They wouldn't accept a bribe. Everything was great. Were they a threat to others? No. Were they violent? No. So then here comes the Roman world saying, we hate these Christians. Stomp them out. And you ask the question, but why? <laughs> what have they done wrong? And you know what they said? They meet in secret and commit cannibalism. Okay, <laughs> where did that come from? They made it up. It was a misunderstanding of what the Lord's Supper was, eating the body of Jesus, drinking his blood. They said they meet in these love feasts and commit sexual immorality. And certainly anyone who actually knew the Christians is rubbing their forehead saying, those people, <laughs> they're pretty nice, normal people. But you see what it is, it's this dynamic. The world's deeds are evil. 
The world really does commit sexual immorality, and so they want Christians to be doing that. They want there to be an ulterior motive. They want to catch the righteous in unrighteousness. They're watching, and if they can't find something, which hopefully we never give them a reason, then they will come up with reasons, or they'll find the few examples they can and highlight them and say, that's what they are. And we will come back and try to reason and say, that's not most true believers. That's, we'll admit there's some, yes, and this happens, and we're all in process. But you can't reason. You can't reason. Because what John, I'm not saying this, what you see it in the text, John is saying is the way Cain hated Abel is the way the world hates you. And Cain hated Abel because Cain was evil and Abel was righteous. We should love lost people and live righteous lives, but not with the expectation that the world will reciprocate our love. Have you ever been disappointed in that way? You invest in a lost person, or you try to live an upright life thinking that people will respect that in you, and sometimes they will, but overall, it will be an unrequited love. And this is the reason why. Unbelievers' hatred of Christians is not any more reasonable than Satan's attempt to overthrow the throne of heaven. <laughs> Surely Satan knows you can't do that. He probably does. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. It doesn't make any sense. But the thing is, if your deeds are righteous like Abel's, if you've been born again to a living hope, if you've trusted in Christ, you will love because that's what he says Verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Why do you love believers and why do you love the lost world? Why do you love your neighbors and your co-workers? Not to get them to love you back. Sometimes you need to chisel that into your mind. Not to get them to love you back. You do it because you've passed out of death into a realm of life. You do it because you have a heart that must love. But don't think that by loving lost people, you'll win all their admiration. Sometimes, yes. But John says it's not generally going to be that way. We have pushed our way as believers in some sense back through the doorway of Genesis 3 that we've come through. <laughs> we've gone from Genesis 4. He says we passed out of that death. We went back into the garden. It's not fulfilled yet, and yet now we're living in a world of life. We want others to have life. We're alive. Therefore, we love, but not to win the admiration of the world, which we will never have, never. So there's the warning, and there's the explanation. And family of God, I hope you can understand in drawing from this passage and appreciate the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 5. Blessed, not cursed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are those who are treated badly for legitimate reasons because you're annoying or something, but if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, Jesus says rejoice and be glad. Why? Because there are two groups in this world, only two. There is the group under Cain, the Grendels, the descendants of Cain, and there is the group under Abel, and you only get to be in one of those two groups. 
If you're in the group under Cain, you will kill to get what you want. You'll even kill for unreasonable reasons. You'll let bitterness develop and fester in your heart. You'll hate those who do righteousness. You will live in a world of bitterness, a cage you create for yourself, and you will refuse to walk out the open door. You will live in there, hateful, being hated, hating, but... There's another group if you've passed out of that world of death into life and walked into the freedom and light and life of Christ, then you are now under this group called Abel. And praise God for that. But know that Abel died because he was righteous. So don't be surprised if you're mistreated. Instead, Jesus says, rejoice. Why? Because if the world hates you, you know you're not Cain. <laughs> if the world hates you for righteousness sake, you know you are able. It's a confidence that we have. Don't be the sort of Christian, please, who wakes up every morning, scrolls through the news on your phone, and allows that to cause the hatred you feel toward whoever out there, them, those who are causing problems. You allow that to Add fuel to that bitterness, to that hatred, and then you go on your day starting with a big cereal bowl of hatred. Don't be that. Wake up. Choose not to be like Cain. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. See the man we'll see next week who died in love to give life, and you go out in life to give life to others, even if it requires your death. Don't be like Cain. Be like Christ. Let's love one another. Let me pray. Lord of love, thank you that you have transferred us, your people, out of a world and realm of death. And we would be like children of wrath, those who follow the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. We were them and we would be them. Such were we except that you transferred us by the death of Christ and you made us into your friends. And our prayer now is that you'd help us to heed the warning of this passage, that we would, even today, before the sun goes down today, tonight, that we would all deal with the bitterness we feel in ourselves. And if we don't know what to do with it, we would at least cast it upon you in prayer and beg you to free us from the prison of bitterness Teach us to squash even the beginnings. Help us to commit only the murder of Romans chapter 8, that by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. Help us to murder our murder. Help us to put to death our hatred and bitterness for our enemies and not our enemies themselves. Help us, Lord, not to fall in the ditch that former Christians have in the Crusades and other times of thinking we need to kill our enemies. No, I pray that you would help us to love this world that hates us, and only to hate the sin that remains in us, and in hatred to put it to death, so that we might truly live life abundantly, with a clear conscience toward you and others, and loving from the heart. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.